Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I don't see any American dream. I see an American nightmare. We never initiate any violence upon anyone. But if anyone attacks us, we reserve the right to defend ourselves. When you're in your own nation, in your own land, you're in a position to get justice. But when you're in another man's country, in another man's land, you have to look to that other man for justice, and you'll never get it. We're nonviolent with people who are nonviolent with us, but we are not nonviolent with anyone who is violent with us. Anytime you beg another man to set you free, you will never be free. We are ready and willing to pay the price that is necessary for freedom. What price are you talking about? The price of freedom is death. Welcome to Make It Plain, where we offer Christian reflections on the words and life of Malcolm X. I'm Philip Holmes. And I'm Taylor Gray. We are your hosts. So, Phil, this this episode, uh, we wanted to talk about something that I, I believe a lot of our listeners have been waiting for us to talk about, and that's this juxtaposition between Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King. And this this juxtaposition is is something that often, you know, may be a source of debate or polarization. But uh, we want to approach this this charitably, and, and I and I like to think about it in the vein of uh, a recent example that we have of how to to appreciate two people or, or two entities and what they bring to the table, no matter how differently they may present themselves or the content that we all enjoy. So I know during the pandemic, we're just kind of coming out of the intensity of, of the pandemic, and we all had a lot of difficult things to navigate. But one of the bright spots, I would say, of the pandemic was this, this creative outlet to enjoy music together as a community while we're all in the house separate from each other. And that was under this platform that some of you may be aware of called Versus. Versus. So this is Swiss Beats and Timberland decided to come together and say, hey, you bring your top 20 songs that you produced and I'll bring my top 20 songs. And from that initial kind of platform setting, you know, Timberland would play a bunch of records that he produced and Swiss Beats would pl- play a bunch of records that he produced. And the the idea supposedly was to come out with a winner at the end. But what ended up mm-hmm. happening was more of a celebration of just all the music that people enjoyed. So as time went on, other artists jumped into the fray and you got anything from Babyface and Teddy Riley to DMX and Snoop Dogg and you're playing all these records back to back and the people aren't sitting back tallying up the score to say who wins and who loses. They just pr- appreciate what both artists bring to the table. So I, I, right. I, I hope that that's what we can do today is is do a yep. good job at humanizing both men and appreciating their perspectives, their, their strong stances. Like we said in an earlier episode, Malcolm has strong convictions, but at the end of the day, we seek to be charitable. So let me start us off with this quote, this quote from Malcolm X that says this, 
the white man pays or subsidizes Reverend Martin Luther King so that he can teach the Negroes to be defenseless. That's what you mean by nonviolent, to be defenseless, to be defenseless against one of the most cruel beasts that has ever taken people into captivity. That's the American white man. So, Phil, I, <laughs> if, I, if I could be fair, just ask, how, how does this quote strike you or rub you immediately? Yeah, so this particular quote, I think, is understandable okay. from Malcolm's okay. point of view. Mm-hmm. I, I understand where Malcolm is is coming from. I, I do wonder what he mean by what he means by subsidizes mm-hmm. because it sounds as if King was on sort of the the white man's payroll, if you will. Yeah. So I, I would I would wonder, you know, because he could just mean subsidizes could just mean like they platform King mm-hmm. because again he talks about the media. Mm-hmm. He talks about the power of the media, and he he calls it the white man's media or the white man's press mm-hmm. or something like right. that is is what Malcolm refers to it as. And we talked about that in a previous episode. So that that could that is one way, I guess, if you if you will, of subsidizing uh, a person is by platforming mm-hmm. them. But he says so that he can teach the Negroes to be defenseless. Mm-hmm. It is possible. Because it is interesting, if you read this carefully and and think through it charitably, mm-hmm. it's less of an attack upon King directly, and it is definitely an indirect attack. I can read it as the, the white man is sort of, in, in Malcolm's mind, the villain, and he is using King to teach the Negroes to be defenseless, not necessarily those are the intentions of King. Right. Right. King was, and I think that to some extent that is possible, right? Mm-hmm. That King is, you know, we, we, there's this interview on NBC. I listened to clips of it, but I never listened to the entire thing until you sent it to me uh, recently. And one of the things that the interviewer asked King is, Was there, in addition to your commitment to the idea of nonviolence, wasn't it also the only thing you could do? the white community having the monopoly on violence, that if you had tried violence, they would have met it with violence. It was the only device open to you, wasn't it? Well, I'll put it another way, that uh, morally, I was led to nonviolence because I felt that it was the best moral way to deal with the problem. We were seeking to establish a just society. And uh, it was my feeling then, and it is my feeling now, that uh, violence is certainly much more uh, socially destructive, and it creates many more social problems than it solves. So I was led to nonviolence for deep moral reasons. Now, there is no doubt about the fact that in our struggle in Montgomery and all over the United States, for that matter, nonviolence is also practically sound. Uh, it would just be impractical for the Negro to turn to violence. He has neither the instruments nor the techniques of violence. We are about 10 or 11 percent of the total population of the nation, and I would say we are about one-tenth or one percent of the firepower. So it would just be totally impractical and unwise and unrealistic for the Negro to think of violence. Well, I saw this in the beginning. And, uh, Montgomery, but this wasn't the basic reason that I 
uh, turned to nonviolence and that I believed in it as a philosophy. I turned to it because I felt that it was the morally excellent way to deal with the problem of racial injustice in our country. And, and now this is King months before he was assassinated. So this isn't King early on in the movement. This is King post-Civil Rights Act, and he's having this, his interview, and he, and he still held to sort of this nonviolent philosophy, mm-hmm. which, which, again, I've mentioned in previous episodes that I think King was brilliant for that. And that's, I, I think that in a lot of ways, that's the biblical approach. Now, if you want to essentially criticize Malcolm for criticizing the nonviolent approach, Malcolm isn't saying anything that a conservative today wouldn't say. <laughs> Malcolm sounds like a conservative okay, we gotta, in America. Okay, we got to break that down. <laughs> you want my gun? You can take it out of my cold, dead hands, right? Conservatives are all about de- using violence to defend themselves. Because Malcolm isn't talking about going out and waging war. He said this multiple times. We're nonviolent with people who are nonviolent with us. We, but we are not nonviolent with anyone who is violent with us. Violence is a response to violence in Malcolm's worldview. He's never encouraged people to be an initiator of violence. So those, those are my initial thoughts. I think that's good, man, because we're undoing maybe some perceived conclusions about what's, what's being said. It's kind of like you're trying to anticipate the worst conclusion someone could, could draw from this statement. And, and trying to just unfold it a little bit more with some context and some nuance. And, and I, think, I think that's good. I mean, even your point about something that Ameri- an American conservative would say today as it relates to their own personal interests does sound very similar to what, what Malcolm is conveying right now. I mean, it's, you know, whatever the notion of pandering is, because, you know, let's just be real. Like, there are, there are sentiments that Malcolm's conveying right now, there's those kinds of sentiments are present now. Someone, a, a black person or, or a leader of a particular, a leader in a black social movement capacity views another black figure who is publicly gaining more notoriety and, and speaking on a variety of social issues as it relates to the black community. This maybe lesser known figure looks at that person and says, oh yeah, they... They're they're putting that person out there for us to see to essentially stifle the movement to uh, prevent real change from happening. So I think this is a quote that we can definitely interrogate under the I guess probably from the perspective of here is Malcolm in context. This is where Malcolm is thinking. This is where his his current opinion stands based on maybe his devotion to the nation of Islam and, you know, the height of his emotional response to the condition of black people in this country. So he's looking at Dr. King and saying, oh, this dude's an Uncle Tom. Oh, this dude is is essentially trying to tell black people to chill so they can't really actually facilitate change. But to your point, he's not advocating for violence. And, and that's where when you get to the Dr. King clip um, where there may be a little bit of tricky waters in the, in how he's articulating the opposite view of nonviolence. I don't think that's what Malcolm is advocating for either. He's not saying, hey, let's get a group of black people together to start an insurrection and let's arm ourselves and storm the American government. 
He's not saying that, but he is drawing a line in the sand in terms of defense, in terms of being able to defend yourself against an attack. And so here we are at this place where if we're not careful, we don't contextualize or we don't take a, a hard look at at what perception can teach us about why these men are communicating what they communicate, we, we could very quickly travel into uh, in this corner, we have this person and in this corner, we have the other. You know, you, you're not you're actually engaging with these clips or engaging with these quotes. You're not just listening to them, um, you know, in, in a way where you hope it sinks into some deep corner of your subconscious. But no, like actively engage what Malcolm has actually said. Like he literally says, we're not advocating to to be violent and to cause chaos and disruption in the streets. But here in this quote, he, he's directing his criticism to King. To your point, Phil, I think it's a broader criticism of the system that he feels like enables King or, you know, he uses the word subsidizes. And like you said, that that may not necessarily mean that they're literally paying him a paycheck but they're putting him on a platform, making him the most visible. And I think at the end of the day, man, like, you know, if we think about how history played out, I would say the the white American power structure does look more favorably on Dr. King than a Malcolm X. So, you know, is is it fair for for Malcolm to criticize Dr. King being an instrument of the white American power structure? It's fair. Okay. Because I think in a lot of ways, Malcolm was was correct in his assessment of what was taking mm-hmm. place. I just think that just because Malcolm was correct does not necessarily does not mean at all. Uh, I don't have to say necessarily in this case, but does not mean that Mal- that Martin, I'm sorry, was complicit. Right. That's good. Say that again. Say that again. Because he was correct. Just because say that just one. because Malcolm was correct does not mean and it, it it shouldn't be taken as Martin being complicit as an instrument. Mm. Because the because the two are different. So to cause if you say that he's complicit, it can sound as if Martin and sort of these these white leaders were in cahoots and that wasn't the case. I think that they were taking a philosophy and they were using it i think to their own sort of ends while they're looking at it as yeah we want these people to not ride we want these people to uh remain quote unquote defenseless we don't want them to take up arms like martin's our mm-hmm. guy like that malcolm guy is dangerous and, and here's here's the reality one of the things that is in you know, you, you, you alluded to this, that Martin is viewed as sort of more of a effective civil rights hero. This is what Alex Haley wrote in Malcolm's uh, autobiography. He says this. He says he was clearly irked when a New York Times poll among New York City Negroes reflected that three-fourths had named Dr. Martin Luther King as doing the best work for Negroes, and another one-fifth had voted for the NAACP's Roy Wilkins, while only 6% had voted for Malcolm X. Brother, he said to me, do you realize that some of the history's greatest leaders never were recognized until they were safely in the ground? Mm. And and there it is. And, and there we are back at, I think, kind of some of that cutting, sharp, prophetic perspective that Malcolm had. 
He, I'm sure there's a little bit of ego in there as well. Um, but but know, but is, he, I, I wouldn't human. I wouldn't say I, the only reason I wouldn't say there there was an ego there is because this is New York City, black folk. This is sure. Malcolm's stomping grounds. These are sure. these. This is the people in the north, right? Because we talked about this regional dynamic. I understand how it would be just as I, I would I would imagine King would have had the similar response if people in Birmingham or Atlanta, Georgia said Malcolm X. Uh, was doing significantly more for black folk than King was, right? It's it's one thing, you know, I can't help, right, but think about, and this is unrelated but related, when Kobe is in Philly and I think he receives the reward in Philly and he gets booed by the home crowd in Philly and the reporter asked him, how does it feel to get booed by your hometown? And he said, man, it hurts. It really does. It did hurt my feelings, Right. Yeah. This was essentially and, and Kobe his, never said that. Kobe never admitted, <laughs> like when he was like. That's why, because I, 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 when I first saw the interview, I was like, Kobe was like, you know, I don't really care. I, that's what I thought he was gonna say, and mm-hmm. I was like, man, like mm-hmm. this, like Kobe's being like extremely like vulnerable in this moment, and I, yeah. I think that this is essentially Malcolm getting booed by a place where he spent a significant amount of his time and his life and his investment. You're right. You're right. I mean, of course, there's this whole I'm, I'm a pastor, man. The, the whole only in his hometown as a prophet without honor type of thing. Like, you know, that's that's kind of like this reflection of, man, that's a shame that even amongst the people who had known me the best have seen probably the most of my life. There's no appreciation. The, the reason I enter, you know, ego into the whole thing, because essentially this is a, a, a popularity poll. Right. Like, this isn't a, a true measurement of effectiveness. <laughs> this right. is just an opinion poll for a newspaper that's being used by the white man's media. So for for Malcolm, <laughs> I mean, listen, we're human. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to trying to be disparaging and ter- talking about Malcolm's response. Um, yeah, because, yeah, I, you know, Dr. You, King has an ego as well. Right. It's, it's it's just we're human. We we want to we want to hear that people are with us. Right. Well, and also again, one of the things that you said, people that know me the best, and and this yep. also shows too that Malcolm, for most of his time, was handcuffed. Mm-hmm. He was handcuffed by Nation of Islam in even speaking to or thinking about working with civil rights leaders. It was interesting. The Nation of Islam was more interested in working with the KKK because of this sort of separatist philosophy. And Malcolm was never okay with that, but he respected Elijah Muhammad at the time. So he kind of allowed for it, if you will. But this is a situation where you have a guy who was handcuffed in and then basically towards the end of his life, he didn't really have an opportunity. By the time he left the Nation of Islam, I mean, I, I think he may have lived like a year, year and a half. I don't even think it I, I, I think one could actually say it was barely a year because when he was in Miami, that was in February, and he was still technically in the Nation of Islam, though he was on suspension. And then by the time he, uh, and I think technically a year later, he was dead. He was, he was killed the following February. And and the thing about it, too, is what we're observing here. I think what we're, we're speaking into is is this whole notion of of how perception and, and what it what it looks like to live into a caricature of a person versus like the actual truth of who they are. In some ways, I, I feel like Malcolm, if I'm asked, if I'm asked, is this fair 
you know, in some ways I would say it's a, it's a little unfair because I, I think he's viewing Martin as a caricature in some ways that is beneficial for his cause and, and, and the ways that he, he communicates strategy for the black community. But in, in other ways, it, it damages Dr. King's credibility in ways that he probably should be given more of a chance by folks in the black community who are looking for change as well. So it's, it's, it's interesting because like this quote we're using from, from Malcolm X is one of many, he has been critical directly of Dr. King's, particularly his, his uh, methodology and his strategy, nonviolence. He's not going leveling personal attacks against his character necessarily. um, Even though some people could argue that, but he's, he's criticizing his methodology in this strategy that he feels like puts black people at a disadvantage in this country. We could parallel that today with whatever we view about the racial reconciliation movement of our time, you know, in the church where uh, I don't care if it was promise keepers back decades ago or whatever. It, it's this public picture of quote unquote nonviolence being an, not being a threat capitulating to other environments that are white centered, you know, letting a white person wash your feet or get up there and talk about a black person, get up there and talk about, they don't see color. You know, it, it, it seems to put black people at a disadvantage from far away and say, you are a person who's harming the movement more than you're helping. And I think that's where, that's where Malcolm's coming from. And, and part of me resonates with that. Because I can levy those criticisms, but here's the key thing. I can levy those criticisms at a distance. What we always have to contend with when we look at Malcolm and Martin is that they were often viewing one another from a distance. And, and that's one of the unfortunate things about their relationship. You know, you talked about you know, earlier how Malcolm had attempted to reach out to King to have some of these conversations and King mm-hmm. was essentially, as far as you know, and as, and as far as I know, because my information is from you, unwilling to uh, meet with him. Just didn't respond. He just didn't respond. Just, didn't yeah, respond he just didn't him. respond. Yes, exactly. So it wasn't it wasn't a direct. It's more of an indirect. And I would imagine, too, that there are plenty of reasons why that was the case. It wasn't just King wasn't curious or King didn't want to talk to Malcolm. I'm sure that also King had people in his ear and King himself was was strategically thinking, especially early on, if I align myself with this brother or publicly meet with him, that's going to essentially hurt the cause, right? And this is one of the ways that people can divide us when we have different philosophies. And I, and I think that this is, this is, this is one of the effects of uh, white gaze. And, and we haven't really talked as much about white gaze uh, on here, but white gaze affects black people in so many different ways because when we begin to obsess with a what is this going to look like, we're not really concerned about what this is going to look like to other black people because black people are always have always been a lot more ecumenical and aligning or working alongside others who may potentially have different views than us. Uh, one of the historic examples I can give to this, even before Malcolm and Martin, is Francis Grimke, who was a Reformed Presbyterian African-American pastor, clergyman, who also helped found the NAACP and 
uh, worked alongside W.E.B. Du Bois in the Niagara movement. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, but he's an example in a positive manner that he wasn't worrying about white gays. But, you know, as once the media and in our, in our context, social media and all that stuff gets involved, I've noticed that people are very, very hesitant with who they work with in this sort of cliquish way. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and, yeah, and it's either the gaze of white liberals or the gaze of white conservatives that they're afraid of. Like, how is this going to affect my brand? Uh, yep. What are they going to think if they see me, you know, talking to this person or engaging this person or retweeting this person? Because now, you know, a retweet means a full endorsement of that person's entire platform. It's real. So it's, it's not just that the leaders uh, lack the ability to be ecumenical, but the leaders have also not discipled their people uh, well enough to be able to think critically for themselves. So if I like this guy or if I like something that this guy says, I'm afraid this is going to be received as a full endorsement. Therefore, if my people get exposed to this person, they're not going to be able to critically engage and critically think about where this person is right and where this person is wrong. So this is a problem within, I think, American evangelicalism in general, because people will say, well, you know, this person was platformed by this ministry and this person was platformed by that ministry. And it was like, yeah, they platformed a particular message, but this wasn't a full endorsement. And and so mm-hmm. it shows that there's a there's a significant issue with parishioners being able to think critically for themselves and come to conclusion, which is fascinating because we're in one of the most educated societies on earth and we have an inability to think critically, which is why this whole anti-CRT movement has made so much, has gained so much traction is because people can't think. And I think, you know, again, we're, we're looking at two men who are evolving in their perspectives you know, and, and maybe by way of circumstance, the, the shared collective circumstance of black people in this country, they were becoming more proximate to each other uh, while they were having kind of their own personal revelations about what is and what isn't, you know, what is truth and and what's the way forward. They were having these personal kind of introspection moments over time. But then the circumstances themselves, like, you know, King finds himself in the north later in his life and Malcolm finds himself at odds with his own religious system. Whatever we think in terms of idealistic pursuits of bringing us together as a church community, ethnically and culturally. So I I think I would look closer towards uh, a figure in the black community that strives for this, because I think that at the end of the day, Dr. King was trying to do that. He was trying to bridge these different elements of of passion and frustration within the entire civil rights cause and whatever people, whatever civil rights was for some person in, in one particular arena, maybe it was different for another person in another arena. So today, for me, a modern example of that is someone like Killer Mike, who comes up through the ranks of hip hop as far as visibility is concerned, but has a very deep personal history that's entrenched in the deep South black culture, whether it has to do with education, whether it has to do with work ethic, whether it has to do with activism, you know, in its purest form. And he travels this vein of nuance that forces us to interact with American society, but at the same time protests the 
power systems that exist. And some days he's cheered for, some days he's booed off the stage. Um, I'm, I'll never forget watching, and, and you guys should watch this, watch this in your own time. There was a forum, a Revolt TV forum, where all of these black leaders were, were gathered together in this room to talk about what could be considered the black agenda. And I don't think all of it was good, but there were particular portions that were really helpful. And it was interesting to see an exchange between Killer Mike and Candace Owens. You know, the thing about black folk that I love so much is all things are equal at the at the dinner table. You know, like we get together with us and we start talking like for real amongst us. And we could really like start to understand each other better. We could yep. incorporate humor. We could incorporate, you know, just a shared experience that makes you look and say, man, I, I completely forgot you're going through the same thing I'm going through. And I, in that way, I, I, I love the potential that this exchange or this even confrontation between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King gives us because we have to look at, at, at other factors. You've touched on this earlier in, in our in our episodes, but, you know, region and context has to play a role in what's communicated here. For, for Malcolm to even enter subsi- subsidizing <laughs> a brand, it says the white man subsidizes a brand that's favorable to them. I mean, man, that's that's a regional reflection, in my opinion, because Dr. King is like, listen, bro, I ain't got to prove nothing. I've been in jail. I've been beat up. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think you said this before, like, bruh. Do you understand like the the cost that I've already paid right now? You know, which is which is why I I, I kind of like, man, is that is it fair for Malcolm X to say that to Dr. King as if he hasn't actually worked through some difficult times? So I guess from from your perspective, like, do you even see that at play here that that this is a regional perspective that Malcolm has? Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that it's a it's a factor. You know, I think that in the NBC interview that that King did, and that, that interview is so important to really understanding King and the in the uh, final yeah. phases of his life. He talks about the the black people in the North. Uh, the frustrations at points are much deeper. The bitterness is deeper. And I think that's because in the South, we can see pockets of progress here and there. We've really made some strides that are very visible and every Southern Negro knows that he can do things today that he couldn't do four or five years ago. Where in the North, uh, the Negro sees only retrogress uh, and he doesn't find it as easy to get his vision centered on his target, the target of opposition, as he does in the South. Consequently, this is made for despair and at many points cynicism, a feeling that you can't win. And it simply means that we've got to develop in the North a massive job of organization and mobilizing forces and resources to deal with the problem in the urban ghettos of the North, just as we've done it in the South. And these are things that I had already alluded to in previous episodes, right, where in, in some ways Malcolm is living in a time that's probably more similar to, you know, 2021 in some ways than what King and Mega Evers and 
all of these other brothers and sisters were experiencing in the South. So we're essentially looking at someone who is saying, I think Malcolm is, is, is trying to get people to see in some ways that King's mindset is short-sighted. And I think mm-hmm. Malcolm, I think where I would disagree with Malcolm is in King's solution. Mm-hmm. It, it was short-sighted. I actually think King's solution for the South was, was spot on. Yes, yeah, man, I just wish these brothers would have just sat down and talked. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I listened to this and I'm just like, man, like, it's like the South and the North thing is, is so fascinating to me because even though there may not have been kind of like these open displays of violence that you could observe and respond to visually, there was still kind of a palpable fear in the North that if you cross certain lines, you know you're in trouble or you know you're going to get beat down or you might not be found again. And it's not it's, it's more psychological and, Ma- and Martin actually spoke to this later in his life when he started protesting against the ine- unequal housing opportunities for black people. Where in Chicago, right. all of these people came out. He was just doing a regular march. And, bro, he got mobbed up there by a, a, a bunch of white residents in the Chicago yep. area. And he actually got hit, I think, with a bottle or something. While he was marching up there yep. and and Martin's words were like, man, I have never seen it like this. Like, <laughs> yep. and he's from the South. Yeah, he thought that in some ways it was worse in the North than it was in right. the South. And he also talked about how in the late 1960s, the people in the South were a lot more hopeful and a lot more optimistic versus the people mm-hmm. in the North having a, a, a sort of yep. angst because the people in the South could look back you know, five, six, seven years ago and see that life had significantly yes. and dramatically improved yes, for them. they got wins. Whereas yes. the people in the North, the Civil Rights Act wasn't really a win mm-hmm. for them, right? Because it didn't really change anything. Bro, this is why I'm just like, man, I wish these guys just could have talked because it was it was perspective that, you know, obviously had to be gained over time. And, you know, it. it <laughs> I remember just, you know, the scene in the movie Selma where the meeting of Malcolm X and Coretta Scott King was depicted in the movie. And Coretta comes later to tell Martin, who was in jail at the time, that she met with Malcolm X. (laughs) And the way they depicted Martin's reaction was, I can't believe you met with this dude. You know, like just the, just the, the scandal of Martin Luther King's wife, meeting with one of his biggest opponents in a moment that seemed like an olive branch, it did not inspire optimism from King. And and that just shows that, you know, these folks, these guys are, are walking through different scenarios and circumstance, but they're still focused on a common goal. They just needed to reason with one another. You well, know? and I also think that it's, you know, in, in retrospect, it's completely unfair how society has pit these two against yeah. one another as if they were a one-to-one correlation, right. right? These weren't two dudes who were both in the South, again, fighting for and fighting against the same thing. Right. But, it, but, it, but it speaks to also how, how black people are often viewed as all being the same. Yep. Black people in the North and black people in the South had two very different fights on their hands. Yep. Again, I wonder if the media regularly distinguished between the two. Yep. It's not the same. 
they are working for two separate causes. There's so much that we can learn from their distant exchange that could inform the way, even the way we engage one another now, because in in so many ways, a lot of the the passionate disagreements that we're having across the uh, Christian community can learn something from this, you know, in that there is a there's a broader cause that it seems like everyone's on one accord about, you know, I think <laughs> some of the ecumenical expression that we see is branding. But I think for the most part, like there are people who I talk to they're they're generally, generally pretty charitable people. You know, rarely do I meet somebody who's just totally morally bankrupt and, you know, they have their own agenda. And, you know, I know we can be tempted in that arena, but in general, man, I think it would be, we'd be best served if we try to reduce the distance between one another. So we have these sharp public disagreements where something is said and maybe a person's name is even mentioned. I mean, bro, I I come from like the hip hop culture arena where, you know, that could happen. Like disc records happen, sharp disagreements happen. But then over time, like you see people reconcile and meet somewhere and there's love between them. So, I mean, what do you think we leave on the table in terms of how we handle public disagreement as Christians. Yeah, man, that's that's a a really good question. I don't think that necessarily we can we should glean as much or prescribe what Malcolm and Martin how they engage one another rather than learn from it because there's there's a few things that I think you have here. You have potentially Malcolm's words isolating for longer periods of time. And they are two men who unfortunately did not have long to live, uh, especially Malcolm. So for every public disagreement, there was often a, I, I would imagine that extended, right? The time in which they would actually meet. Now, I would say that Malcolm's desire to to meet with King is commendable. And that's definitely something that should be prescribed. I would say King's hesitancy to meet with Malcolm, while to some extent understandable, given the comments that Malcolm had, I'm assuming, made up, up to these various points, is unfortunate. But I think what we should learn from that is that it's not necessarily always the best because I, I wonder... After M- Malcolm had passed, how much King had wished that he had a chance to spend more time with him and talk to him and and him learn from him and the other learn from them. Because I would imagine, too, that perhaps Malcolm could have been persuaded by King's nonviolent approach, even though, again, I don't think there's a one-to-one correlation in their ability to apply it in sort of this new, non-segregated society that they were living in. But... Uh, at the end of the day, that conversation, that dynamic, that uh, that evolution would have been interesting and fascinating to watch. I think what we can learn from this is that you have to actually talk to one another, communicate with one another, and make sure you understand the other person. So we talked about Malcolm's intellectual integrity. And while I don't necessarily know that he always represented King accurately, by his desire to meet with King does show that there was a genuine search for the truth. But another takeaway point from that conversation would be 
So if your desire is to represent them accurately, then it expedites the actual gathering to have these conversations. Sure, sure. And, 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 I, and I agree. I think that's the takeaway, at least that I have from Malcolm, is, is just the intentionality of trying to meet. You know, saying, listen, I, I said what I said, but I, I'm still interested in having a conversation. And it's not just because I want to be buddy-buddy with you to be friends with you, but it's because because I care about the broader cause. I care about this this notion of exactly. black liberation that it seems like we're both working towards, but you know, I don't agree with some of your methodology. And 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 to be honest, you know, this may sound controversial to some degree, but in I believe if 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 Martin would have lived a full life, I believe that he he would have abandoned his nonviolent strategy. I believe he, at least the way he communicated it, because the 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 part that I believe caused Martin a, a, a ton of conflict and pushback from leaders in the civil rights movement or leaders in the black community at large was just the terminology of nonviolence being seen as a term that pacified the white power structure. You know, I just believe mm-hmm. that him using that was was an overcorrection of the pers- the perception of black people. Now we will accept you because you're nonviolent. Uh, because you're you're coming out saying that and 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 Malcolm yeah. is more saying like we never said we were violent. You know, so now you're you're forcing me to respond to a straw man. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You man, when you just said that that base definitely struck a that was a light bulb that hit because Again, nonviolent juxtaposes it against something that doesn't actually exist. Right. What you have Malcolm proposing is not a pro-violent. It's a pro-defense. Right. We've talked about this, but I don't know if it clicked what King's message was, was communicating about the leaders who did not like the language of nonviolence. Right. Because you can be nonviolent if you are not an agitator. Nobody would say that conservatives... Or conservatives wouldn't say conservatives are. I don't know what progressives would say. But, you know, Malcolm says we are a nonviolent people with people who are nonviolent with us. Yep. Right. That's that's nonviolent. Violence isn't usually conceived as people who are defending themselves. Right. Again, I just think I think Martin over time, I mean, there were people who were close to him, like SNCC was was starting to to become more of a force and that's Stokely Carmichael and, and and leaders associated with his rise. He was young at the time, but he actively uh, disagreed with Dr. King's terminology of nonviolence. Yeah, I think what you said was key. It's not that he would have abandoned it. I think that he would have saw strategically the unhelpfulness of how it was being communicated. We're starting this conversation around perception. What what is perceived in what Malcolm is saying, and ultimately, how is Martin being perceived that would cause Malcolm to respond this way? And and again, like if we got these brothers in a room together just to talk about the nuances of, of where they're coming from, because King is talking about Gandhi, you know, like <laughs> he's talking about a higher moral approach to oppression that extends outside of the immediate American context. You know, he was moved by an example that was far away from our country. 
and he's trying to take it to this country and, and it was effective. I just think that it was a it was one of those things that was effective in its time or there was a time of its maximum effectiveness that time would have moved forward in such a way to to say like, all right, we don't know if coming out with this nonviolent terminology or push for a strategy, social strategy, especially as you move further north, we don't know if that's applicable. And I just think that King would have had the foresight and the wisdom to say, you know what, I think that's kind of still my personal contribution to the movement in some ways, but I can back off of the terminology. I understand we need to emphasize other things right now. Right. You know, and and I and I again, like that's just me seeing them together in a room and to your point earlier, there are people kind of playing political games with their branding and they won't engage people who sharply disagree with them because they're afraid of getting exposed yep. or they're f- afraid of of losing their following. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's where Malcolm's term of subsidizing, it, it gains credibility. Yep. Because if you had nothing to lose and this was all about the struggle and the and the whole thing that we're trying to do together, then you would take the time to to meet, especially with black people who disagree with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this is an internal family discussion. We should at least gain an understanding between one another so we can be more broadly effective. Yep. And if black people, how much more other Christians? Christians, right? bro. Because that's that's a, that's an even deeper family discussion. S- that's that transcends it. race, social, economic class, and all that. So you know, another another thing too. You know, I I think that I don't I don't know when it comes to approaches. I don't know what approach would have been most effective because Malcolm's solution wasn't violence. I don't, I don't know if Malcolm actually got around to the point where he was actually able to. Uh, comprehensively develop a solution because he was so busy responding to the caricatures that King had, I think, unintentionally put in his direction that he felt like he had to respond. Yeah. But Malcolm, Malcolm's keen insight allowed him to see the problem more clearly and more deeply than anyone before his time. And I think we have to acknowledge King again in that same NBC interview. So in Malcolm's book, Malcolm's autobiography, he says this about the um, March on Washington. He says, yes, I was there. I observed the circus. Whoever heard of angry revolutionists uh, all harmonizing, we shall overcome someday while tripping and swaying along arm in arm with the very people they were supposed to be angrily revolting against. Whoever heard of angry revolutionists swinging their bare feet together with their oppressor in lily pad park pools with the gospels and guitars and I have a dream speeches. And the black masses in America were and still are having a nightmare. Now, mm-hmm. you would say, so Malcolm essentially saying that you're talking about you have a dream, but essentially what we have on our hands post the rights act is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. But guess who actually admitted the same thing? When you stood on the Lincoln Memorial that day in August, 63, and you said, I had a dream, did that dream envision that you could see a war in Asia preventing 
the federal government doing for the Negroes, preventing the society doing for the Negroes, that which you think had to be done? No, I didn't envision that then. I must confess that that period was a great period of hope for me. And uh, I'm sure for many others all across the nation, many of, of the Negroes who had about lost hope, saw a solid decade of progress in the South. And uh, in 1954, which was, uh, I mean, 64, 1963, nine years after the Supreme Court's decision to be in the march on Washington, meant a great deal. It was a high moment, a great watershed moment. But I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has at many points turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. Uh, I still have faith in the future. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years, and I would say over the last few months. I've gone through a lot of soul-searching and agonizing moments. And I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead. And some of the old optimism was a little superficial. And now it must be tempered with a solid realism. And I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go and that we are involved in a war on Asian soil, uh, which, if not checked and stopped, can poison the very soul of our nation. So again, but this is this is the king that we've been told. We're always present. We're not presented the NBC, you know, right. months before his assassination. King. This is right. when people talk about king has been sanitized. This is exactly what they're talking about, and and they do the same thing with Malcolm. Yep. Neither one of these men are actually humanized. They're either sanitized or they're demonized. Malcolm was demonized because they took a particular point in his life and they highlighted that as if that was all he ever was. And then they took a particular point in King's life and, they, and they've highlighted that historically as all he ever was. But when you look at this interview, you can tell that both of these men's, men evolved. When you, when you look at the interview with King and you look at an evolution has taken place. And rarely do we learn from the wise older men Right. The ones that are always put on display are the ones who are either overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. Mm-hmm. And Martin understood and he articulated this in an interview, the effects of the trauma and the abuse that they've experienced, how that can make them sort of pathological. He used that word. Exactly. He said he says we're all prone to become pathological. He's like, I've had to fight against becoming pathological. And I think this is the world that we live in today. Because yeah. not a whole lot has changed post-Civil Rights Act. You know, I think there's there's a lot of platforming and posturing on both sides as it relates to this. But I believe the world is actually looking for a witness. The Malcolms of the world are looking for a witness from the church that actually stands behind what we say we believe and is, is actually consistent with what Christ really taught. Not in that, you know, you, you become in some way shielded from conflict. There's kind of this Pleasantville faith where everybody just doesn't see color and we get along nicely and smile at each other and endure the social conditions that are before us. Like, no. Like, if there are things that need to change, they need to change. It may it may take some confrontation, but that doesn't mean that love is not present. I don't ever want to be a person that says we just never disagree. Like, no, man, I live in that world. We have to disagree at certain times. But in all you're getting, get understanding. We should understand each other. Taylor, that is 
so good, man, and so helpful. And I think that the only way that you can have those types of meetings and you can show that type of unity and respect for your ideological opponents is if there is a desire to understand one another and and a desire to seek what is true and what is helpful for those who are being fought for. Very concerned when guys try to highlight the fact that they were the ones to say it first because you're wanting credit and recognition when you should be celebrating that finally other people are saying what you've been seeing and it doesn't really matter who says it first as long as it's being said uh, and as long as it's being communicated accurately and truthfully and holistically and it's not being sanitized. And so I, I think this is, is helpful, bro. And I think this is this sort of Malcolm and Martin conversation. I think it's going to be helpful to the church. I think he's going to be bring some clarity about these two individuals. And I think it may even see some things that they didn't realize were actually the case and were actually true about King and and about Malcolm. So I think this is a good conversation, bro. Yep. And I just got one final thing to say. Stop pitting Malcolm X against Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Stop it. And you pastors out there. You pastors out there, you know who you are. You know who you are. Okay. All right, bro. Thankful for you. All right. Likewise, man. Thanks for joining us this week on Make It Plain. Make sure to visit our website at makeitplain.co. That's makeitplain.co, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcast, so you never miss an episode. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out the autobiography of Malcolm X and consider joining our Patreon group, Home to Roost, where we're discussing his autobiography from a Christian perspective twice a month. Speaking of our Patreon community, a big shout out to each and every one of our Patreon supporters. You help make this show possible. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. Until then, let's continue the conversation via social media. A link to all of our social media accounts can be found at makeitplain.co. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.